In America's cities and towns today, flags will be placed on graves and cemeteries. Public officials will speak of the sacrifice and the valor of those whose memory we honor. I have new illusions about what little I can add now to the silent testimony of those who gave their lives willingly for their country. Words are even more feeble on this Memorial Day, for the sight before us is that of a strong and good nation that stands in silence and remembers those who were loved and who in return loved their countrymen enough to die for them. Yet we must try to honor them, not for their sakes alone, but for our own. And if words cannot repay the debt we owe these men, surely with our actions, we must strive to keep faith with them and with a vision that led them to battle and a final sacrifice. Our first obligation to them and ourselves is plain enough. The United States and the freedom for which it stands, the freedom for which they died, must endure and prosper. Their lives remind us that freedom is not bought cheaply. It has a cost. It imposes a burden. And just as they whom we commemorate were willing to sacrifice, so too must we, in a less final, less heroic way, be willing to give of ourselves. Each died for a cause he considered more important than his own life. Well, they didn't volunteer to die. They volunteered to defend values for which men have always been willing to die if need be the values which make up what we call civilization, and how they must have wished, in all the ugliness that war brings, that no other generation of young men to follow would have to undergo that same experience. As we honor their memory today, let us pledge that their lives, their sacrifices, their valor shall be justified and remembered for as long as God gives life to this nation. And let us also pledge to do our utmost to carry out what must have been their wish, that no other generation of young men will ever have to share their experiences and repeat their sacrifice. Earlier today, with the music that we have heard and that of our national anthem, I can't claim to know the words of all the national anthems in the world, but I don't know of any other that ends with a question and a challenge as ours does. Does that flag still wave for the land of the free and the home of the brave? That is what we must be trying to do. Few men can say things with the poise and eloquence and compassion and care like President Reagan, this Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms, officially beginning on May 30th, 1888, this holiday. I'm Crystal Heath. You're listening to a special edition, Memorial Day edition of The Friddle Show today. And today, all we are going to do is talk about some of our heroes. Maybe some stories you've heard before, maybe some you haven't. But Memorial Day is a very special time. It is a time that we remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. It is it is different from Veterans Day. On Veterans Day, we honor all those uh, who have served our nation in our armed forces. But on Memorial Day, we remember those 
who gave their lives for our country. And also on Memorial Day, don't forget their families, right? We have uh, people that have lost their fathers, their mothers, their siblings uh, for our nation. And these are the families, these are the people that we remember uh, this weekend. Memorial Day first officially celebrated in the United States on May 30th, 1888, but it began 150 years prior. As a crowd of, I'm sorry, 150 years ago from now, roughly, was 1888. That's what I... I can't think or talk today. But 5,000 people gathered for what was known as Decoration Day to place flowers on the graves of those who had been killed during the American Civil War. A congressman from Ohio named James Garfield, who was a lay preacher, former major general in the Civil War. You know his name because he would go on to become the 20th president of the United States, but he gave a speech that day. He said the, he recognized the impropriety of uttering words at such a solemn occasion. And when he looked at the thousands of graves around him, he said, quote, For the love of country, they accepted death and thus resolved all doubts and made immortal their patriotism and their virtue. He asked the people gathered there that day to forever remember the sacrificial service of those who, quote, from voices from the gravestones will forever fill the land like holy benedictions, unquote. Now today, for many of us, Memorial Day has become a, an extra day that we get off of work, a day of, of picnics, a day of gathering together with family and friends, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, many of those, if not all those who had died, they gave their lives so that we could have the right to do things like that. But while you are gathering and enjoying your family and friends, don't forget this weekend to pause and thank God for the over one million soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen, coast guardsmen, and women who have laid down their lives in the service to our country since the Continental Army was founded in 1775. Memorials are important. It's important to remember. It's not only important to remember the past, but it gives us hope, inspiration, and courage for our future. So, uh, mymemorialday.org has a great, uh, great listing of just story after story after story of heroes from Memorial Day. I'm going to read you just a, just a few of them today. There's a guy named Private George Watson. On the morning of March 8, 1943, Private George Watson was aboard the Dutch steamer's Jacob, which was moored at Parlick Harbor on the island of New Guinea. Watson was far from home. The Birmingham, Alabama native graduated from the Colorado Agricultural and Mechanical College in 1942 and entered the U.S. Army via the draft at age 28. He was assigned to the 29th Quartermaster Regiment, 2nd Battalion, which deployed to the Pacific Theater slowly after Watts, shortly rather, after Watson finished training. He worked in logistics. On that fateful March morning, Japanese bombers rained fire upon the Jacob, catching the Americans off guard. The ship was abandoned with many of its crew members jumping overboard in a last-ditch last attempt to survive the onslaught. Private Watson was among them, though he did not leave the ship to save his own life. 
but rather according to his Medal of Honor citation. Instead of seeking to save himself, Watson remained in the water, assisting several soldiers who could not swim to reach the safety of the raft. In doing so, he saved the lives of several of his comrades. Exhausted from his heroic efforts in saving others, Watson would end up drowning that day. His actions earned him the Army's second highest award, the Distinguished Service Cross, and he was the first African-American to receive the decoration in World War II. In 1997, Watson was one of seven African-Americans awarded the Medal of Honor by President Bill Clinton. No African-Americans had received the Medal of Honor in the years immediately after the award, or after the war had ended. According to his citation, Watson's extraordinarily valorous actions, daring leadership, and self-sacrificing devotion to his fellow man exemplify the finest traditions of military service. On September 27, 2015, the remains of Alexander Bonnyman Jr. were laid to rest in his hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee, more than 71 years after he died a hero almost 7,000 miles from home. A Medal of Honor and Purple Heart recipient for his bravery during the Battle of Tarawa, Bonnyman was buried in a battlefield cemetery on tiny Betio Island. The impromptu burial grounds location was lost, however. Bonnyman's Knoxville grave marker read buried at sea for decades until History Flight, a nonprofit dedicated to repatriating America's war dead, discovered the cemetery and recovered the remains of both Bonnyman and many other heroes who fell in Betio. Clay Bonnyman Evans, Bonnyman's grandson, participated in the excavations and spoke about the experience on May 30th, Memorial Day weekend 2016, as part of the National World War II Museum's Memorial Day commemoration. Alexander Bonnyman's pre-war life was spent in the mining business. Following in his father's footsteps, he joined the family business at age 22 after a short stint in the Army Air Corps. By 28, Bonnyman had acquired his own copper mine in the mountains of New Mexico. His time with the military, however, uh, was not done. Bonnyman enlisted in the Marines in 1942 and soon set sail for the South Pacific on the USS Mastonia as a member of the 6th Marine, 2nd Marine Division. He quickly rose in rank from private to second lieutenant to first lieutenant in little over a year. Bonnyman landed on Tarawa, which was occupied by Japanese forces, with the 8th Marine 2nd Battalion on November 20, 1943. During the U.S. invasion, Bonnyman acted on his own initiative when assault troops were pinned down at the far end of the BTO Pier by the overwhelming fire of Japanese shore batteries and repeatedly defied the blasting fury of the enemy bombardment to organize and lead the besieged men, according to his Medal of Honor citation. Bonnyman led a group of men on a fearless attack upon heavily guarded Japanese installations. He was relentless, according to the citation, only halting advances to reload on ammunition. After successfully gaining strategic ground on a Japanese bunker, Bonnyman died holding his position against heavy Japanese fire. His leadership, fervor, and aggressive tactics spurred his men to keep what he gave his life to take, successfully repelling a Japanese counterattack. Bonnyman gallantly gave his life for his country, said his Medal of Honor citation. Private Earl J. Keating, a New Orleans native, was killed in action on December 5, 1942, in the Australian territory of Papua, which is present-day Papua New Guinea. He was buried in his hometown on May 28, 2016. Keating, assigned to the anti-tank company 126th Infantry Regiment, 32nd Infantry Division, died under heavy Japanese attack while his unit defended a position that would become known as Huggins Roadblock. 
He was buried there with Private John H. Klopp, also of New Orleans, near where the men fell. The location of their gravesite was lost until 2011 when Keating's and Klopp's identification tags were reported discovered. The defense POW MIA accounting agency released its reports identifying Keating's remains in August of 2015. Keating played on the football team at the school he attended, the Sacred Heart of Jesus School and Jesuit High School. He was a fishing and photography enthusiast who also played the flute and studied graphic arts at Delgado Central Trade School. He later worked as a commercial artist for Mason Blanche Department Store. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in September of 1941. He was 28 years old at the time of his death and was awarded the Purple Heart and Bronze Star, among other honors. Roland Ellers and his brother Walter planned to meet on the beach on the afternoon on June 6, 1944, after one of the biggest invasions in human history. The brothers, who enlisted together and fought alongside each other in North Africa and Sicily, were separated for D-Day due to military policy intended to protect families. Roland didn't make it to their meeting that afternoon. Walter was part of the invasion on Omaha Beach. Later in Normandy, his heroics earned him a Medal of Honor. Roland was also sent to Omaha Beach with Company K of the 1st Division Infantry Division's 18th Infantry Regiment. Roland died after a mortar shell hit his landing craft. Walter didn't find out for a month when he ran into Roland's commander, who delivered the bad news. Eller's story is now part of an exhibit called the Dog Tag Experience at the National World War II Museum, and you can learn more about that uh, there. Then, did Corporal Germain Laville. Germain Laville was born in Plaquemine, Louisiana, the oldest of seven children. She graduated from Louisiana State University, where she was a member of Alpha Chi Omega, as well as a number of campus organizations, and was beloved by her classmates. After graduation, Laville began to work as a school teacher, but being the only one in her family eligible to serve inspired her to enter the U.S. Marine Corps' Women's Reserve on September 6, 1943. Jermaine Laville was buried with military honors in her hometown and later honored by her alma mater, LSU, when the honors dormitories were given her name. To Jermaine's family, friends, and associates came the tragic news of her death on June 3, 1944, after her 22nd birthday. She lost her life heroically at the Marine Air Base in Cherry Point, North Carolina, when the building in which she was instructing a class caught fire. Just after her escape from the building, she returned to answer a call for help and died trying to save the life of a fellow woman Marine. Jermaine was a heroine in every sense of the word. Johnny David Hutchins, Congressional Medal of honor. Fewer than 500 medals of honor have been awarded for actions performed during World War II. Navy Seaman First Class Johnny David Hutchins of Wimmer, Texas was 21 years old when he was killed in action in the Pacific. He was presented the Medal of Honor posthumously for his actions. His citations reads as follows. For extraordinary heroism and conspicuous valor above and beyond the call of duty while serving on board a landing ship tank during the assault on Le New Guinea 4 September 1943. As the ship on which Hutchins was stationed approached the enemy-occupied beach under a veritable hail of fire from Japanese shore batteries and aerial bombardment, a hostile torpedo pierced the surf and bore down upon the vessel with deadly accuracy. In the tense split seconds before the helmsman could steer clear of the threatening missile, a bomb struck the pilot house, dislodged him from his station, and left the stricken ship helplessly exposed. 
Fully aware of the dire peril of the situations, Hutchins, although mortally wounded by the shattering explosion, quickly grasped the wheel and exhausted the last of his strength in maneuvering the vessel clear of the advancing torpedo. Still clinging to the helm, he succumbed to his injuries. His final thoughts concerned only with the safety of his ship, his final efforts expended toward the security of his mission. He gallantly gave his life in the service of his country. Story after story after story of heroes can be found from the Civil War, from World War One, from World War Two, from the Korean War, from Vietnam to even you know, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and the the conflicts that have gone on today. And because of technology today, we are able to see tributes and to hear stories so much faster uh, than what we would before. The Navy SEAL Foundation. You can just go to NavySealFoundation.org, look at Our Fallen Heroes. They have a page that says Our Fallen Heroes, and you can just scroll through and you can see just names and faces and pictures of uh, so many countless individuals that have given their lives in the service of our country. You can go to MarineParents.com if you want some heart-wrenching reading, if you need to refocus for your for Memorial Day, just just Google search. It is unbelievable how much information is available and uh, <laughs> the photos, the stories. Just, just don't forget them. Marine Lance Corporal William W. White was scheduled to be discharged in February of 2003. His discharge was delayed, which he was glad about because he didn't want to be discharged. He wanted to go with his unit to the Middle East. His widow, McKaylee, said that's the kind of guy he was. He always thought about someone else first. He specifically wanted to go with his unit back to the Middle East because one of his fellow soldiers was particularly nervous about the trip and he wanted to go along to be there for him. White was 24 years old when he died on March 29th of 2003 when his military vehicle rolled into a canal. Following his military service, he had wanted to move back to Brooklyn to join the fire department or pursue a career in law enforcement. His relatives remember him as a fine gentleman who set a good example, who led by example, who was thanking God and whom they thank God for to this day. And I could go on. I could go on and on and on. This is just uh, the story of the four chaplains. This is a World War II story. Uh, by the, um, on February 3rd, 1943, an army transport ship called the Dorchester, carrying American soldiers to the icy North Atlantic on their way to serve in World War II, was about 100 miles off the coast of Greenland in rough sea with more than 900 people on board. Many of them were little more than boys, young soldiers and sailors who had never been so far away from home before. The journey had been arduous already, with the men crammed into claustrophobic, all-but-airless sleeping quarters below deck, constantly ill from the violent lurching of the ship. In the blackness of night, a German submarine filed torpedoes at the Dorchester, and one of the torpedoes hit the middle of the ship, causing pandemonium on board as the ship began swiftly sinking. 
The soldiers and sailors, many of them who were abruptly awakened from sleep by the attack, searched desperately in the dark for their life jackets and lifeboats and a route to safety. With them on the ship were four military chaplains. They were Father John Washington, who was born in Newark, New Jersey, a Catholic. The Reverend Clark Poling, born in Columbus, Ohio, with the Reformed Church of America. Rabbi Alexander Good from Brooklyn, New York, who's Jewish. And the Reverend George Fox, a Methodist from Lewistown, Pennsylvania. In the chaos on board, according to multiple accounts by survivors of the attack, the four chaplains tried to calm the soldiers and sailors and lead them to evacuation points. The chaplains were just doing what chaplains do, providing comfort and guidance and hope. I could hear men crying, pleading, praying, a soldier named William B. Bednar would later recall. I could also hear the chaplains preaching courage, their voices the only thing that kept me going. With the Dorchester rapidly taking on water, there were not enough life jackets readily available for every man on the ship. So when the life jackets ran out, the four chaplains removed their own and handed them to soldiers who didn't have them. More than 600 men died that night in the frigid seas, but some 230 were rescues. And some of the survivors, in official accounts given to the Army and in interviews after the war, reported what they saw as the ship went down. Those four chaplains... Men of different faiths, their arms linked, standing on the deck together in prayer. They willingly gave up their futures. They willingly gave up their lives to help the men who had been placed in their care by the Army. The U.S. Army War College has in its records a narrative of what happened that night. One of the men who survived the sinking of the Dorchester, a Navy officer named John J. Mahoney, is quoted as recalling that before heading for the lifeboats, he hurried in the direction of his quarters. The rabbi, seeing him, asked where he was going, and Mahoney said he had forgotten his gloves and wanted to retrieve them before being dropped into the cold sea. Rabbi, the rabbi said that he should not waste his fleeting time and instead gave Mahoney his own gloves. When Mahoney said he couldn't deprive the rabbi of his gloves, the rabbi said that it was all right because he had two pairs. Only later, according to military historians, did Mahoney realize that, of course, the rabbi was not carrying an extra pair of gloves, but had already decided that he was going down with the ship. According to the Army War College account, another survivor of the Dorchester named John Ladd sat of the four-chaplain's selfless act, it was the finest thing I have seen or hope to see this side of heaven. The story of the four chaplains was quite well known in America for a while. In 1948, a first-class three-cent postage stamp was issued bearing their likeness. There are still stained-glass windows in some chapels across the United States that pay tribute to the four men, including one at the Pentagon. But the national memory is short, and they are no longer much discussed. February 3rd was years ago designated by Congress to be set aside annually as Four Chaplains Day, but it is not widely commemorated. Perhaps, though, at some point, if not today, we can collectively again remember their service and reflect on what valor and courage and sacrifice really mean and how rare they truly are and how blessed we are to have heroes. That story was told by Bob Green, a CNN contributor. Because, though, you may not know their story that happened on February 3rd. You might know something else that happened on February 3rd, which is a Super Bowl. There's nothing wrong with the Super Bowl. I love football. But 
sometimes in the hubbub and busyness of life, as time flies past us, it is easy to forget the sacrifices of those who have gone before us. But we can't forget. And we say thank you to the families of those who have lost their loved ones for our freedoms. And though it isn't Veterans Day, we say thank you to all those that have served, all those that have put their lives on the live on the line for us and for our freedoms. And I can think of no more fitting way to end today's program in this special edition of, of the Friddle Show than with Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago. And this was, of course, Lincoln speaking in 1864. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who have struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, but that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.